1 Peter chapter number 1, preaching through the book of 1 Peter on Sunday mornings. And one of the values of preaching systematically through books of the Bible is that it gives you opportunity to deal with issues, topics, that you might not would deal with if you were just picking topics to preach. If I were just every Sunday picking a topic to preach, nothing wrong with that. But if that's what I was doing, well, there are several topics that are my favorites that I am comfortable with, and I would probably lean toward those topics more and more. But when you're preaching through a book, you can't do that. Because sometimes you have a, um, sometimes you have an easy passage, sometimes you have a difficult passage, but the next passage is the next passage. Sometimes it is comforting, sometimes it is offensive. But don't blame me. The next verse is the next verse. So, so I mean, I, I didn't write it, I'm just reading it. But that's how you keep yourself as a preacher from being a preacher of just a hobby horse. And that's how you set yourself up to preach the whole counsel of God. And it's not to say that there's no value in topical preaching. There, there is. But with preaching through books, we are forced to deal with all of the Scripture, not just our favorite subjects. So we have spent two weeks in introducing this little book. The first week we looked at Peter himself, the man, and the transformation that, that Christ worked in his life from clay to rock. And then last week we, we looked at verse number one and we just introduced the book. Who wrote it and who was the audience and what were the circumstances and, and that kind of thing. Well, verse two actually begins the main body of the letter. Where Peter begins by reminding the saints of their great salvation in Christ. And if you'll just scan through verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, there are some very heavy doctrines in those verses. I, I, I'm talking about, I mean, some of the weightiest doctrines in the Bible. And we're going to deal with every one of them. He talks about election, foreknowledge, sanctification, sprinkling of the blood, inheritance in heaven. I mean, he deals with it all. And we're going to deal with every phrase and see what it means, but I want you to look just at the first phrase of verse number two. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That word elect, there's a related word, predestinated, has been the subject of more debate in Christian circles than just about anything else. There are some who teach a doctrine of election and they say that God has chosen some to go to heaven and some to go to hell and there's nothing you can do about that. You're either elected to be saved, you're elected not to be saved and that's just the end of the story. And the churches or the preachers that would preach that are called Calvinist. So when I come to that word in the Bible, I know the doctrines that have been built off of it, and I know how strongly I disagree with that doctrine. I also know how dangerous those doctrines are to a church. So it's very hard for me to read it, make a few comments, and just to pass on it, because I believe that it is here for a reason. It is in the text. It is the next text. Here we are. This is one of the main proofs of Calvinism. 
So it is impossible for me to deal with this verse without answering the heresy that is extracted from this verse. Now in 2016, I stood in this pulpit and I taught for six weeks on the doctrines of Calvinism in an adult Sunday school class. I have also taught it in Bible Institute, so I am well aware, I am well aware that I have covered Calvinism before. But for the last several weeks, here I am with it staring me in the face. And as I have wrestled with this text and other related texts, here's what I felt like. It would be beneficial, I believe, for our church if we just took a week or maybe two or possibly three and just say why we are not Calvinists. Now, there are, there are some non-negotiables for our church, and this is one of them. I know churches that were doctrinally sound, just as sound as you are. And then somebody came in and began to hold Bible studies, picked off a few other people, planted the seeds of Calvinism in that church, and that church got overrun by Calvinism, and nearly every time those churches are dead because of it. And I want you to hate it as much as I hate it. I want you to be on guard as much as I am on guard Against. So for the next three weeks, in preaching through 1 Peter, because we, here we are, but in preaching through 1 Peter, I want to, for the next three weeks, I want to take the opportunity of this phrase, and I want to deal with the doctrines of Calvinism. Now I have to caution you. This is going to be very doctrinal. Very. We are all going to be theologians for a little bit. You have got to put your thinking cap on. I want you to think with me. We are going to learn something from our Bible, why we are not Calvinists. Now, there's five doctrines. I've allotted myself three weeks. I'm covering one of them this morning, which means the next two weeks we have really got to pick up the pace. I'm going to talk fast. You're going to listen fast. The only thing I ask is you don't get done listening before I get done talking. And if you'll listen all the way through, we'll be okay. Now, now it's possible, it's possible that somebody sitting here this morning will say, Preacher, I have absolutely no idea what Calvinism is or what the big deal is. So let me tell you just very quickly where Calvinism got its start. Calvinism is named after a French reformer named John Calvin. That is the man who is credited with formulating this particular system of theology. John Calvin lived during the first half of the 16th century uh, when the Reformation was sweeping across Europe. And depending on who you read, Calvin was either the greatest theologian or the greatest heretic who ever lived. He was born to a devout Roman Catholic church or a Catholic home. He was baptized as an infant, but at age 18, he formally left the Catholic church. But though he formally left the Catholic Church, he still retained a lot of Catholic doctrines to the day that he died. Now, John Calvin was an avid student of a man named Augustine. Augustine was a church father in the 4th century, pastored a church in North Africa during the 4th century. And you may not know anything about church fathers. In fact, you probably didn't get up this morning and say, boy, I hope that the pastor gets up and talks about church fathers in the 4th century. That probably wasn't on your mind. But Augustine was a church father... And what you need to know about him, he was one of the most influential church fathers who ever lived. Augustine wrote over 240 books in his lifetime, 
And some of those books are still read in seminaries today. But I'm going to tell you something. Augustine was an odd duck. Augustine believed some really weird doctrines. For example, Augustine believed that baptism was necessary for salvation. Baptism washes away sins. He believed that babies who were not baptized would go to hell, but only on the outskirts of hell. He believed that the Eucharist, the Mass, was necessary for salvation. He believed that a person could lose his salvation, that Mary was a perpetual virgin. He believed that you could pray to saints. He could believe, he believed that the Lord's Supper contained the spiritual presence of the body and the blood of Christ. In other words, Augustine was a Catholic. That's what he was. In fact, he was the original Catholic. Did you know, did you know that they read, and if you'll give me some more monitor up here, brother, did you know that they read Augustine in all of the Southern Baptist seminaries? That a lot of Protestants think that he was a great theologian. My personal opinion is that he was a heretic of the highest order. Augustine was one of the major influences on John Calvin. John Calvin got his theology from Augustine. Now I'm going to skip John Calvin. I'm going to skip all the history of the performers and all of that. But if you've ever heard read church history, then you're familiar with the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformation was the time when groups were breaking away from the Catholic Church and there was a revival of religion sweeping across Europe. When you study church history and, 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 and revivals like the Great Awakening, we wouldn't put the Reformation in that same category. It was a, it was a revival of religion, there, there was some good that came out of the Reformation. It broke the stranglehold that Catholicism had over Europe, but the Reformation was not a revival. Now, if you came out of the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformation groups came out, and they were Protestants, and they, they began, and the reason why they were Protestants is they protested against the Roman Catholic Church. Most Protestant denominations began with the Reformation. Baptists are not Protestants. Now, there's two reasons why Baptists are not Protestants, one, we didn't come out of the Reformation. We were already here. That was not our beginning. The second reason why is because Baptists were hated by the Protestants as much as the Protestants were hated by the Catholics. While the Catholics were burning the Protestants to the stake, the Protestants were burning Baptists to the stake. So we're not Protestants. During the Reformation, you had men leading the Reformation in different parts of Europe. You had a man named Zwingli. He was in Switzerland. You had a man in Germany. His, man was, his name was Martin Luther. Then you had a man in France. His name was John Calvin. He later moved to Geneva, Switzerland. And of all of those reformers, John Calvin is the most influential. But I'll tell you, John Calvin had a lot of weird beliefs too. Now remember, he got his doctrine from Augustine. So John Calvin believed that Christ's body and blood were spiritually present in communion. He believed that salvation was not possible without baptism. He believed that baptizing infants bestowed on them future faith and planting in them the seed of grace. He believed in sprinkling. He was a novelist which believed that, that the kingdom that, that Christ was set up would take place between the two comings. In other words, right now. He got all of his doctrine from Augustine, who was the original Catholic. So though he left the Catholic Church, he still kept a lot of the Catholic doctrine. Now, here's what John Calvin is known for most. It is the system of theology that is named after him. There are five doctrines that make up a system of theology. 
Sometimes they're called the doctrines of grace. Sometimes they're called tulip theology because they all start with the letters that spell tulip. There is total depravity. There is unconditional election. There is limited atonement. There is irresistible grace. There is perseverance of the saints. Those five doctrines are Calvinism. Now, I would tell you that I believe that those five doctrines, as taught by the Calvinists, has been the most influential heresy that the church has ever faced. So many prominent theologians today are Calvinists, R.C. Sproul and John Piper and John MacArthur, and I could go on. And here's what's happening. A lot of young men are going off to college and seminary, and because they, they, they fancy themselves as intellectuals, they're reading Calvinist theologians and they're coming out of Bible college as Calvinists and they're going into these churches and they're planting the seeds and they're falling prey to it and they're killing churches. And I would tell you that Calvinism is the mortal enemy of missions and it's the enemy of evangelism and Calvinism will kill a church quicker than anything that I know of. And I hate Calvinism. So this morning I want to deal with Calvinism. I'm going to deal with five doctrines and this morning I'll deal only with the first one. And that is total Depravity. Now, total depravity is the cornerstone of Calvinism because without that doctrine, the whole system breaks down. You cannot have Calvinism without total depravity as defined by the Calvinist system. So what is it? Well, unconditional election is the doctrine that God has predetermined who will and who will not be saved. Irresistible grace is the doctrine that God has determined who will be saved. And if you are in that lottery, then you have to be saved. You, you will not be able to resist and you'll not be able to say no. You, you, have, to, you have to be able to be, be saved. So since, 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 since man is incapable of choosing God, God has to do everything for him. So you have to have total depravity in order to build predestination and irresistible grace upon. Now, let me begin by saying that I believe in the depravity of man, and you do as well. We believe that because the Bible teaches that all men are sinners. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. Romans 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, uh, uh, there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Isaiah 64 and verse 6, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. We're all as an unclean things and we all do fade as, as, as a leaf and our iniquity, our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We believe in the depravity of man. There is no Christian who does not believe in the depravity of man. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that men always do the most evil possible. It doesn't mean that unsaved men can't do any good. We all know lost men that give to charity and do good works and are good neighbors and what have you, but he can't do any good to earn salvation. Man not, may not be as bad as he can be, but spiritually he is as bad off as he can be. Man in his depravity can never turn to Christ to be saved of his own free will outside of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's a key phrase. Man of his own free will can never choose Christ to be saved outside of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So there's absolutely no debate about man's depravity. And you don't have to be a Calvinist to believe that. Calvinists do not have a corner on that doctrine. In fact, I submit there ought to be more preaching on the depravity of man. When you preach the gospel without the law, you're preaching a solution to which you have not presented a problem. And that is, it is a weak presentation of the gospel to gloss over man's sinful condition. No, man is a sinner. 
However, catch this. This is key. When a Calvinist says total depravity, what he really means is total inability. Total inability is the result of total depravity. Here's what it says. The natural man is so corrupted by the sin nature. He is utterly unable of his own free will to repent and put his faith in Jesus Christ. It says that the unregenerate man cannot make a choice to be saved when the gospel is presented to him because his moral nature is so corrupt and it is so pervasive. The operative word is cannot. Total depravity is total inability. Man is unable of his own free will to choose to be saved. Can I tell you that so far I agree with that statement? Where I would disagree with the Calvinists is the conclusion that they draw from that. You see, you can have a true statement, but if it is built upon a false premise and it comes to a false conclusion, then the true statement is no longer true. So we believe in total depravity, but when the Calvinist tells you what he believes total depravity is, you say, oh no, I, I don't believe it like that. that. That's not what I'm talking about. You see, the Bible teaches that the unregenerate man cannot of his own free will repent and believe in Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. No man can be saved unless the Holy Spirit first convicts him of sin, reveals to him the gospel, and draws him to Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can convict a sinner that he becomes a Christian. No one gets saved outside of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. A sinner will never turn to Christ of his own because every sinner is totally depraved. The sinner is too sinful to turn to Christ for salvation without the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you believe that, say amen. That is not what the Calvinist speaks of when he speaks of total depravity. And to understand his doctrine of total ability and how wrong that it is, I, I want to explain it, and I'm going to frame it in three questions. You get these three questions and you got the message. Here's the first question. To what extent are men dead in sins? Did you take your Bible, find Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll have you turn to just a couple of verses. But Ephesians chapter 2, and this is a key verse for Calvinists on this doctrine. Ephesians 2 and verse number 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now the Bible uses a number of analogies to describe a lost person. And one of those analogies is that a sinner is dead in trespasses and sin. And when the Bible speaks of a sinner being spiritually dead, it's making an analogy between physical death and, and spiritual death. Being lost is like being dead. You understand that. But every analogy can be stretched to the breaking point. That's exactly what the Calvinist does with this theology. You see, you see, this is the first building block for total depravity. So this is a very important concept to them. And to make the analogy fit their theology, they have to make it so that it is true that everything that is true of a physically dead person is true in the spiritual realm of a lost person. So the Calvinist says, well, 
An unsaved man, he can't hear, he can't think, he can't see, he can't believe in the spiritual realm. You can preach to a physically dead person in a coffin, he'll never rise up and be saved. They say, well, that's just the same as it is with a lost man. The, the, dead man, the dead man must be given life. If he's lying there in a coffin, then somehow we have to give him life so that he can then respond and, and communicate or whatever. Well, the dead man, the spiritually dead man, he must be given life so that he can respond. So the Calvinist says that, 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 that the lost man has to be given spiritual life before he can respond to the gospel. This giving of life to this dead sinner it's so that he is no longer spiritually dead and he is able then to have faith in Christ. That is something that is prior to salvation. So Calvinism says that dead in sins is dead like a dead body that can do absolutely nothing. A lost man can't desire, he can't think, he can't, he can't see. All that you can do is just lay there dead until somebody makes you alive again. And God will only make the elect alive again so that they can be saved. So if you're not part of the elect and you're spiritually dead, then you're just dead until you physically die and go to hell. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Just a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 1, look at verse number 18. Romans 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Do you know what these verses are talking about? It's describing a spiritually dead person who knows the truth about God, but he suppresses it in his conscience because of his love for righteousness. But when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. That is a man who is dead in trespasses and sins. He understands who God is. He knows what the truth is and he rejects the truth. So a spiritually dead man can have no more response than a physically dead man is to stretch the analogy too far. A spiritually dead man can hear. He can respond. He can understand. He can believe or reject. It doesn't mean that he's saved, but it does mean that he's without excuse. If you're writing verses down, you ought to write this verse down. We won't turn to it. Amos 5 and verse 4. Amos 5 and verse 4. Here's what the verse says. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel. Catch this. Seek ye me and ye shall live. Now, the Calvinist says, well, when God says, seek me, yes, 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 that's what God says. But God's not calling on all men to seek him. It doesn't mean that all men can seek him. It's just to the elect. Only the elect can seek him because he causes them to do so. The, the non-elect the non cannot seek him because they don't men made alive. They're, they're still dead. So, so they're going to be held accountable for not seeking him even though they were not elected to be able to seek him. You understand that? But, 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 here, but, here, but here's a contradiction to Calvinism in the verse. See if you pick it up. Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Which comes first? The seeking or the living? Huh? He said, seek ye me, and ye shall live. The Calvinist says, no, you're dead. Until you are given spiritual life, then only then can you respond to the gospel and seek God. That verse says just the opposite. I mean, if you have to seek him in order to live, then you're actually not living, which would make you dead. 
They are brought to life after they seek him, not before. Can a spiritually dead man hear? Can he understand? Can he respond? Absolutely. The Calvinist says that because he's dead, he can't respond to the gospel. No more than a physically dead man can respond to you. Have you ever presented the gospel to somebody and they said no? Do you know what that is? That's a response. Rejection is a response. They respond every time that they hear the gospel. In fact, even in physical death, a dead man can do a lot of things. In Luke chapter 16, there is a dead man that dies and goes to hell. And in hell, he opens his eyes. He looks across the gulf and he sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom and he begs for a drop of water. He's dead, but he's still conscious. So here's what the Calvinist does. He takes a true thing, dead, in trespasses and sin, but he stretches the analogy too far till it becomes a very untrue thing. I believe they're wrong on that. Here's my second question. To what extent are men dead in sins and trespasses? Here's the second question. Does man have a free will? Now you got to pay attention. Does man have a free will? Now remember, total depravity really means total inability. It, it, it's, it, it is not will he, but can he? Since the question of ability Inability involves the will of man. Can he freely exercise his will toward Christ? And for simplicity's sake, we'll define will as the power of choice. But the controversy comes in defining free. Does he have a free will? Now stay with me. In order for man to have a free will, it is free of influences. It must be self-determinative. In other words, in other words, the will is able to freely choose without any restraint. Now there's a huge debate among theologians over the will of man. And we use the term free will, yet we acknowledge that man's will is bound to sin. That, that's not what I'm dealing with this morning. The context I'm talking about is, is, is are you free to make choices? Now here's what the non-Calvinist says. Here's what you and I would say. Free will means that God has given us the right, He's given us the responsibility to make real choices at, uh, among real options. So here's what happens. God gives you a will and He lets you choose your course of life without Him controlling those decisions. He gives you the ability to choose. He may put things in your life to influence those choices, but in the end, you are free to choose the course of life that you want to take. Pay the consequences of it, suffer the pain of it, but you get to choose. The Calvinist says, oh yeah, I, I, I too believe in free will, but that's not free will is. Here it is to a Calvinist. God has already predetermined every choice that you're going to make. And then he causes you to freely choose that choice. That's free will to the Calvinist. Huh? And, and, and to ensure, to ensure that you don't get outside the box to ensure that you stay where you're supposed to do and you choose what he has chosen for you to choose. He gives you the nature or the desire that contains that desire to choose what he has chosen for you to choose. With the depraved nature, you can only choose to reject Christ. But if you're one of the elect, then one day he'll give you a spiritual nature that will then enable you to choose Christ. You have been created to choose the only thing that God has predestined for you to choose and you have no option but to choose anything else. That's free will according to the Calvinists. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that free will? 
No, it's not. They, they, claim, they claim that you have a free will, but when you define it, it's not free will at all. See, here's a trick of Calvinists. What they give you with one hand, they take away from you from the other hand. And you might be thinking, well, 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 if God controls all of my decisions, and if I'm not one of the elect, then my decision to reject Christ is not my responsibility. Absolutely. The Calvinist says that even though God causes you and controls everything, you are still responsible because you chose it. That is the definition of their responsibility of man. So God made sure that the non-elect can only choose to reject Christ, but you're still responsible for choosing what God predestined for you to choose. That, that, that's Calvinism. Let, let, me, let me see if I can explain it before your eyes glaze over. If, if, I, bring, if I bring a boy up on this platform, if I, if I bring Joe onto the platform today and, 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 I, and I hypnotize Joe and I give him a magic potion that gives him a very strong urge to kick every puppy that he sees. Okay? Now hopefully he's past that boy stage, I'm sure he is. But I, I give him this magic potion. I hypnotize him when I wake him up. He doesn't know why, but he has this, this overwhelming urge that every time he sees a puppy, to kick a puppy. Now, if he goes out and he starts kicking puppies, whose fault is it? Is it me or is it him? See, see, see I, I'm, I'm partly responsible for that because I put that in him. He don't really have a choice. I, I am responsible. But Calvinism says He's responsible because he's choosing to kick the puppies. He has the desire. Even though the magic potion is controlling the desire, he's responsible. That's how Calvinism defines free will. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Come, come, are you still with me this morning? Theologians, theologians. Not, not scholars, but students. Look at John 5. John 5. I'm looking for number 33. Jesus speaking, he says to Jewish elders, he said, Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from men, but these things I say that she might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Look at verse 39. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Jesus is speaking to Jewish elders. They wanted to kill him right now at this point because he claimed that God was his father, deity. They had received the light from John the Baptist for a short while, so they're capable of receiving the truth. And if they had accepted the truth, they would have been saved. That's what he says. So Jesus wanted to save them. But what stopped them from getting saved was ye will not. Not that you can't. Ye will not come to me that you might. Sounds like they had a choice. That's what it sounds like. It wasn't that they couldn't, couldn't, but it's that they wouldn't. They had the choice to believe or reject Jesus Christ, and they rejected him. They could have received him. So, to what extent are men dead in trespasses and sins? Does man have a free will? Here's a third question. I'm building upon this. To what comes first? Regeneration or faith? No, 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 let me tie this together. Since man is dead in trespasses and sins, so that he can't even respond to the gospel, and since man can only choose what God has predestined for him to choose, and only those who are elect can choose Christ, then what hope do you have? The only hope that you have is that you're one of the elect. 
And if you are one of the elect, then God will one day, if he hasn't already, quicken you with spiritual life. He will raise you out of this dead condition and he will enable you to one day respond to the gospel preached and trust Christ. That quickening is not salvation. It is the step that comes before salvation. Now, now there are three words. There are three terms that the Bible, that, that the Calvinist points to. The first is in John 3 and verse 3. I'll read the verse. In John 3 and verse 3, Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say to you, he said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Hang on to that phrase, born again. And then in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, we looked at the verse, and you hath he quickened. Who were dead in trespasses? Hold on to that word quickened. There's a third word in Titus 3 and verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, you think all three of those terms are salvation terms. To the Calvinists, those are not salvation terms. Those are something that happens before salvation. To the Calvinist, regeneration is God giving him life so that he can then be saved. R.C. Sproul, one of the big Calvinist theologians, if you're a Calvinist, you would have all of his books Here's what he said. He said, the, re the reformed view of predestination teaches that before a person can choose Christ, he must be born again. One does not first believe, then become reborn. Once he is born again, he can for the first time turn to Jesus, asking Jesus to save him. The doctrine that regeneration comes before faith. Now what is regeneration? Regeneration is the act of God whereby He imparts His divine life and His nature to a believing sinner. And the moment that a person is born again, he receives new life and a new position as a child of God. It is impossible to be saved and not be regenerated. It is impossible to be regenerated and not be saved. It is absurd. To say that a person is regenerated by the life of God, but not saved. Because what it does is it creates the oddity of an unbelieving man who's already received the new birth. That's exactly what Calvinism believes. So which comes first, faith or regeneration? And actually, it's so close you can't, you can't tell them apart. The moment, the moment a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is regenerated, he is born again. The moment that he receives Christ by faith, that very moment he receives God's gift of eternal life, it all happens at the same time. So, so is, a person, is, a, is a person regenerated so he can believe, or does he believe and then he's regenerated? Do, do you need life in order to believe, or do you need, do you need to believe in order to have life? In Calvinism, the elect are not saved because they repent and believe. They repent and believe because they are saved. I think that's backwards. You're in John 5, are you? Look at John 6. John chapter 6, still with me? Look at John 6, look at verse 44. John 6 and verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now the Calvinist rightly says that no man can come to Christ unless something happens first. The Father must draw him, but he says that's when he regenerates him. No, what it means is that God draws the sinner to Christ by the influence of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
By the way, what influences what influences a sinner to come to Christ? I'll tell you what it is. It is the cross. It is the cross. John chapter 12, John chapter 12 and verse number 32. John 12 and verse 32. Jesus said, if I being lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me. The cross is the influence. The cross is the inspiration that causes men to turn from their sins to repent and to seek forgiveness. Come back to John 3. Come back to John 3. Look at John 3 and verse 14. You know verse 16. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus goes all the way back to Numbers 21. And, he, and he's referring to a story that every Jew would know in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the people had grumbled and complained and murmured. And so, so, so God sent fiery serpents to bite them when they were sick. And, and then he told Moses to erect a brazen serpent on a pole. And those who would look to the serpent would live. That's what you have to do. You have to look and you live. Just, just look and live. The Israelites have a choice. You can look and be healed or you can refuse and you can die. And Jesus connected what they did to what he tells Nicodemus in the same way you can look to the Son and receive eternal life. It's not just a select few either, but either. It is whosoever will. But the Calvinist says, no, you can't look, look until you live. No, no, you've got to be brought to life through regeneration before you can have faith in Christ. So which comes first, faith or regeneration? Well, John 3 and verse number 15. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3 and verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Do you see which one is coming first? John 20 and verse 31. These are written that ye might believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The Holy Spirit does not regenerate sinners to turn them into believers. He regenerates believers to turn them into godly followers of Christ. By the way, if a person has to be regenerated before salvation, then how long before salvation can regeneration come? And it gets deep here. But the staunchest Calvinist believes that regeneration can take place in infants. In fact, why not? Why not the Holy Spirit go ahead and regenerate an infant and plant that seed of life in him so that when he comes of age, he can go ahead and get saved? Why, why wouldn't he? A few years ago, Thomas Nelson Publishers republished the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the Bible of the Reformers. It's one of the precessors to the King James Bible. And there's been a resurgence of Calvinism in a lot of churches. And so with the resurgence and the revival of Calvinism, Thomas Nelson Publishers saw a chance to make a quick book. book. And so they reprinted the Geneva Study Bible. There's a lot of Baptist churches that are using the Geneva Study Bible. The original Geneva Study Bible had notes in it by the Reformers, by Theodore Beza and Calvin and guys like that. So when they republished the Geneva Study Bible just a few years ago, they took all of those notes out and they put notes in by contemporary Calvinists like R.C. Spool and Piper and guys like that. There's an article in that study Bible on regeneration. R.C. Spool, here's what he says. He says, infants can be born again, although the faith that they exercise cannot be as visible as that of adults. That is the logical conclusion of total inability as defined by the Calvinists. That even an infant can be regenerated, quickened, have new birth, 
without their knowledge or consent, rendering them a born-again unbeliever. And though he may not come to Christ until years later, he must come to Christ or God will be in the pickle of having one of his born-again people going to hell as a regenerated sinner. That's, that's what they believe. Total depravity is really total inability. Man is so dead in trespasses of sins that everything that is true of a physically dead man must be true of a spiritually dead man. Since he is so dead, he cannot make any choice that God has already chosen for him, yet he's still responsible for that choice. And the only hope that he has is that for God to have elected him and bring him to life so he can then make the choice to believe the gospel that God has already chosen him to do. It's the first doctrine of Calvinism. And let me tell you something this morning. I, I, it, maybe you didn't understand all this. I, I don't know. But suppose that you walk in here today lost. You're in your sins. And you hear the gospel preached. You've heard it a number of times. And when you hear the gospel, there is something that begins to tug in your heart. And you become convicted about your sin. And you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And you believe that God will forgive you of your sins if you'll accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I'm telling you that if you'll fall on your face... And call out to God, He'll save you. And the moment, the moment that you put your faith in Christ, at that moment, not before, at that moment, God will impart life to you and you will be born again. But if you hear the gospel and you understand it and you reject it and you walk out of here lost, you do not walk out of here with any semblance of the new birth. You have not been regenerated until you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That is the first building block to what I believe is a very damnable system of doctrine. It will absolutely kill the church. It is the enemy of soul winning. If you follow it all the way through, you will end up in fatalism. Now, I do not believe that we have any closet Calvinists in our church. If we do, I love you. And I pray that God gives you the truth. But be careful what you read. Be careful of who you listen to. The Calvinist appeals to intellectualism. And there's a lot of young men that are reading and they're coming out of Bible college and they're preaching this kind of heresy. Do you know what the Bible teaches? Jesus died for whosoever will. The gospel call goes out to all men. And if you sat in this church one Sunday or a hundred Sundays, you know that you're lost. I'm going to tell you, if you'll come to Christ, you're part of the elect. He'll save you, whoever you are, whatever you've done. He'll save you the minute that you call. Now, I know, I know. But no, Joe, Joe, come and get ready, if you would. That, that, that's very, very doctrinal. Very doctrinal. And, 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 and there's, there's a whole lot more. I'm, I'm going to say just, just right there. And we're not scholars, but we all ought to be students. We all ought to be students. We all ought to be theologians. And I know, I know that this morning, not very practical at all, just this Bible lesson. You come tonight, and tonight I am going to be intensely practical. Tonight, tonight you're going to walk away with something to absolutely do. This morning is doctrinal. Bow your heads with me, would you? Heads but eyes closed.
We're going to sing Amazing Grace here in just a minute. You may have a need, a spiritual need that you need to come pray about, maybe pray for somebody else. If you're not saved this morning, we'd love to take, hold your hand and lead you to Calvary to show you how to be saved this morning. We'd love to do that. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing. If that's you this morning, why don't you come? Just step out, just step out. Let us take a Bible show you how to be saved this morning. Heavenly Father.